Okay. Let's pray together. Okay, Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you for the privilege <clears throat> of being your children, being in your house, being in fellowship with one another. Thank you for worship, for communion, for reflecting together on these incredible truths of the gospel, these high truths of grace. We pray you will bless us now, anoint our ears and our hearts to hear, to receive, anoint your word, minister and speak to us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in the book of Luke. Are you ready? Are you sure? Okay, we're going to move swiftly, clearly, but swiftly, so let's give our focus this morning to God's Word. We've had an amazing journey in the book of Luke, and we are in chapter 8. The rest of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, Luke records five miracles or incredible, mighty works of God through Jesus. It's amazing. And it is bringing us to the all-important question in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Each one of these miracles where Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority over the elements, over the physical creation, over sickness, over demons, and even over <clears throat> death itself, brings us to this question where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am. This is what these passages are unfolding for us. The identity of Christ is the focus. Who was he? Who is he? Is he the Messiah, the Savior? Is he the promised one? Is he God incarnate? Is he the Son of God? And that's what these passages unfold for us. It's an all-important question, the most important question that anyone could answer, and we will address it in full next week. This will be kind of like a two-part sermon. So in his first miracle, the climax of the story is not so much the calming of the storm, as incredible as that is, as much as it's the question that the disciples ask after that miracle when they say, who is this man? For the disciples have not yet come to that full persuasion that this is the Messiah and particularly the Son of God. They refer to him as master, teacher. There is a progressive revelation for the disciples also. So let's jump in uh, in Luke 8, verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day. He got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. If you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, you have Capernaum up on the north shore. And they sailed all the way across to the southeastern shore to a region called the Gadarenes. It's about six or seven miles. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. By the way, we get additional insights from Matthew's commentary in chapter 8 and Mark's commentary in chapter uh, 5. And we will weave those in. So here, Matthew says, it was a furious storm and the waves swept over the boat. And here we read that the boat was filling with water and they were in jeopardy. 
Luke makes it clear that they were in danger of their lives. Remember, these are experienced fishermen. They spent all of their lives on this lake, and they feared for their very life. This was quite severe. And they came to him, and they awoke him, and they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, that's beautiful. I love the principle that in the storm, they cried out to him, don't you? And there's a good principle for us there. In the storm, in the crisis, let us cry out to him. For he can move, he can answer us. And if he doesn't calm the storm around us, he will give us a calm in our hearts and a peace in our hearts and strength through his grace. But let's cry out to him as the disciples did here. And he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was calm. Now let's pause for a moment. We could glide past this, but just think of that. That by his word in a moment... The raging storm and the waves and the boat is rocking and the water is coming over the sides and there is the the wind and the fury of the storm and he speaks. And in a moment there is calm. And the disciples are crying out for fear of their life and all of a sudden, it is an undeniable miracle at the hand of God. And then when the calm came, Jesus had something to say to the disciples. He turned to them in verse 25 and he said, where is your faith? Now Mark's account gives a severer rebuke than that. He asks, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Pause for effect. We all know moments of faith and moments of unbelief in our own life, right? But we desire that more and more we would learn what it means to trust him, to look to him, to call on him in the times of crisis and actually all the time, not just when it's desperate, when prayer is a last resort, but we would be spontaneous and quick in prayer. So, they, they ask this question, where, where is, he asked this question, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? And here is the question, who can this be? Or another translation says, who then is this? That even the, sto- the storm, the waves, the elements would obey his voice. Amazing. He commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. So here they are not fully perceiving the true identity of Jesus. The next time there is a storm on the lake, recorded in Matthew 14, when Jesus walked on the water, remember that? And it says that when he came to the boat, it says that all those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. But they hadn't come to that conclusion at this point. They said, who is this? But the next time, after many miracles and much persuasion in their journey and in their experience, they came to the conviction and the declaration, surely, truly, you are the Son of God. But here... 
They say, who is this man? Even the winds obey him. Now, this brings us to our next miracle. They come to the shores of the Gadarenes, and they are met with another storm of a different kind. They are greeted by a demoniac, a demon-possessed man. It says, when he stepped out of the land, uh, Mark says, immediately, a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time and wore no clothes, nor did he, neither did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And again, Mark says, night and day he lived in the tombs and the mountains, and he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. It says that he had been possessed with a demon for a long time. Imagine the immense suffering in this man's life because of these demons. And it says in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, Mark says, from afar off, he came and he fell down before him. Now notice this. Just the presence of Jesus already has an effect on these demons. And with a loud voice, in other words, he is crying out. He cries out with a loud voice, what? Have I to do with you, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, what's important to notice as these miracles and the theme is related is that the question that the disciples had, who is this man, is now answered by the demons, right? They, they address him as the son of the Most High God. The last question from the disciples, who is this man, is now clearly answered from the demons. Now, in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, there is the story of the slave girl who is following Paul and the other disciples. You remember, she was possessed with the spirit of divination. And day after day, she cried out, saying, these are the servants of the Most High God. Remember? In the next chapter, in Acts 17, there are the sons of a man called Sceva. And when they saw the power of the apostles, they tried to imitate it using Jesus' name and tried to cast out demons. And the demon turned to the sons of Sceva and they said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? What does that tell us? It tells us that the demons know who are the servants of the Most High and they certainly know who is the Son of the Most High. So in verse 29, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It gives us added details here. For it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds. Look at that supernatural power. And was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And Mark's account adds this phrase, and no man could tame him. Isn't that something? They bound him. They tried to contain him so that people would have access to the tombs and that he wouldn't hurt himself. But no man could tame him. And now Jesus asks a question to the man or particularly to the demon. He says, what is your name? 
and he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Now, he probably asked the question for the disciples' sake, that he could show his authority over not just one demon, but many. The term legion is used to refer to a, a Roman uh, uh, army between three to 6,000 men. This doesn't necessarily mean that there were 6,000 demons in this man. The number isn't specified. We just know that there were many, and they use the term legion for it. In Matthew's account, the demon actually says this, or the demons say this. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Notice this, verse 31. They begged him that, they would, that he would not command them to go to the abyss. <clears throat> now an abyss refers to a bottomless pit. This referred to a place of future judgment that the demons were certainly aware of. So they were not only aware that there was a place of future judgment, but also a time. They said, do not torment us before the time in Matthew's account. And they were not looking forward to that time or that place. So they begged him not to send them out. It wasn't time for them to go. So Jesus wasn't negotiating with them. It just wasn't the time. But it was time for them to be cast out of this man. Let's read on, verse 31. And this is where the story gets a bit strange and perhaps leaves us with a few more questions than it does answers. But nevertheless, let's look what it says. Now a herd of many swine or pigs were feeding there on the mountain. This was a, a Gentile region, and there was a pig farming industry on that whole region. This is what it was known for. And they begged him, the demons begged Jesus, that he would permit them to enter into the pigs. And he permitted them. It's bizarre, isn't it? And when we don't read anywhere else in the scriptures where animals were possessed by demons and the demons requested Jesus' permission and he gave it to them? It's a strange one, but that's what it says. And then it says, the demons went out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Now, so their possession only lasted a few moments and they were forced to run down the bank and into the lake and drowned. Now, I haven't got too much explanation for that other than this. Uh, we certainly know we don't build doctrines on certain obscure verses in the Gospels or even in the book of Acts. We get our doctrine from the epistles primarily. But I think, as I considered this and asked the question, why did he allow the demons to enter into the pigs? And I, did, I haven't read this or heard this, but this is what I would offer. Uh, you can take it or leave it. But it would be one thing if he cast the demons out and all of a sudden this, this demoniac was all of a sudden free and in his right mind and normal. That would have been amazing enough, correct? But by the demons going into this massive herd of pigs, it provided a physical and a visual demonstration of this demonic host. So it, in a way, 
put a picture to the power, number one, of the possession, and also the power of Jesus' deliverance. His authority and his power was put on incredible display, not over one demon, not just by delivering one man, but commanding and, and, and uh, delivering this man from multitudes of demons. When those who fed them, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in their country. And then they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and look at this. They found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. Don't you love that phrase? He was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, just like you are this morning. This is the man who no, no one could tame. And now we see him sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. Wow, amazing, for God can do what no man can do. And it says that they were afraid. They saw this deliverance, this transforming power, and they basically had the same responses that the disciples had on the boat. Who is this man? Who can do that? They were amazed at the power and the effect that they saw. Verse 36. And they also, who had seen it, those who were looking after the herd, told the people from the town by what means he had been demon-possessed was healed. In other words, they told the whole story, pigs and all. But they didn't understand. They had a superstitious Fear, so the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and he returned. What about the man who was delivered? Well, it tells us that the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. We understand that, don't we? He had just been delivered from this long possession and oppression. And now he looked to the one who had delivered him and said, oh, I I want to go where you go. But Jesus had another plan for him. He said, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And the other gospel tells us, and what great compassion God has shown to you. And it says that he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things God had done for him. Mark actually says he went through what's called Decapolis, which is a ten cities in that region. He went from city and city in the whole region, not just his house. But he went and told everyone what had happened to him. And I would have loved to have heard his story, wouldn't you? What an incredible testimony that would be, right? But we hear amazing testimonies also about people who have been delivered from the new age after decades of being subservient to it, about people who have been physically healed, about people who have been delivered from drugs and alcohol and depression. In this very room and in this very church family, we have such testimonies about what God has done for us. And just like this man, oh, let us tell people what God has done for us in his great grace and compassion. Now, they get back in the boat and they go back over the lake, back to Capernaum, where Jesus 
basically lived and where his, uh, most of his miracles or most of his ministry was centered from Capernaum around the Galilee area, verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, the next two miracles, the last two that we'll do now, are intertwined. It's one story within a story. And it says, Behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was the ruler of the synagogue. Now, if you've been to Israel, I was actually surprised the other night when we had our class. I said, How many people have never been to Israel, and I think everyone's hand went up apart from about two people, and I was taken back. And it's in our hearts and our prayers, one fine day we will have a trip to Israel. And when we go there, one of the special places that we will, we will visit is the town of Capernaum, the ruins of Capernaum where Jesus' ministry was centered. And when you go there, in the center of the ruins is the is, is this synagogue, You can see the ruins of the town around it. This synagogue was built in the 4th century, and it sits on the foundation, and this is incredible. It sits on the foundation. You can see it there. The darker rock underneath is the foundation from the 1st century when Jesus lived and ministered there. Isn't that amazing? So when you stand in that synagogue, there is no question you are standing on the very site of the synagogue where Jesus taught many Sabbaths in Galilee. It's an astounding place to go. We know that in Mark 1, he went in and it says he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum, and they were astonished at his doctrine. He also cast out a demoniac there in the synagogue in Mark 1. In Mark 3, the man with the withered hand put forth his hand and he was healed on the Sabbath. It happened in that very synagogue and on and on. And it's an incredible place to visit. Now, the prudent student will remember that in the last chapter of Luke, in Luke chapter 7, there is a story about the Roman centurion. Do you remember? And what was beautiful about that story is that he had funded the building of the synagogue. And all the Jews, had he had great favor with the Jews because he loved the Jewish people and the land. And that's why he had done that. Now, you remember the story of the Roman centurion. He had a, a servant that he loved. And he sent for Jesus to heal him. And before Jesus even went in the house, Jesus spoke the word and he healed the Romans, the centurion's servant. Why do I mention that? Because Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, unquestionably would have known about that story because they all knew and loved this Roman centurion. He would have heard about the healing of the centurion's servant. In this community, Jesus and the centurion and Jairus, they would have been, you know, they would have seen and heard and had knowledge of one another. That's amazing. So let's go back to the story. Jairus, he was the ruler of the synagogue, so he was a man of great position and great respect in the community, and he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he begged him to come to his house. Oh, this is amazing. Now, in Mark's account, it tells us actually what Jairus said. I'll read it to you. It says that he begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. And here it says in Luke, for he had 
an only daughter, and Luke emphasizes only daughter, about 12 years of age, and in the Jewish uh, culture and tradition, that was when a young girl became a lady. So his only daughter, precious to him, who has now just become a lady on the threshold of life, is now dying and ready to die. So Jesus agrees to go with him. Matthew 9 tells us, Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. But look, as he went, the multitudes thronged him. In other words, they pressed against him. Jesus is moving from the sea to the synagogue. And when you go to Capernaum, you, you, well, you can stand on the shore, and you can see the synagogue from the shore. It would have been the center of the community. And somewhere between the sea and the synagogue, Jesus is moving towards Jairus' house. He's surrounded by his disciples and all of the multitudes of people pressing against him. You get the picture. Where is he going? He's going to the house of Jairus on request to heal Jairus' only daughter. And Matthew 9 tells us, suddenly we have the next and the last story. A woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Now that reminds me of the demoniac. No man could tame him. It's similar to this. She could not be healed by any. Remember, Luke, who is writing, was a doctor. And he makes the point, no doctor could heal her. And for 12 years, she had spent her whole livelihood on those that could help her. No one could help her or heal her. What a terrible, desperate situation. Another desperate, hopeless, helpless case. And here it is. Matthew says, suddenly, and we have this, she came from behind and touched the border of his garment. The border is the hem or the fringe or the tassel on the, uh, the talith or the garment that would go on the outer clothing of, of, the, of, of the Jesus. She reached out to touch the hem or the corner or the tassel. Now, here is the question. Are you with me? Listen to this. Why did she do that? Why did she reach out to touch the hem of his garment? And it's Mark's gospel that tells us the answer, and I'll, I'll read it to you. In Mark's gospel, it says, when she heard about Jesus, that's why she came. That's why she reached out, because she had heard about Jesus. She had heard about his love, his compassion, his power. She'd heard about the miracles and the healing. And because she heard, it says she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Mark goes on and gives us even more insight. It actually tells us what she said. Listen. For she said, if I only touch his clothes, I will be made whole. In other words, when she touched him, it was with intent. It was with expectation. It was by faith. As she touched him in her heart, she was saying, if I would but just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. That's what Mark's gospel tells us. So she touched, and look at the, go back to the verse, look at the last phrase, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Again, Mark's account tells us that she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Isn't that astounding? 
in that moment of faith, she was healed and she felt and knew that she was healed. And Mark says, Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd. So both of them knew within themselves. She knew within herself she had been healed and Jesus obviously knew within himself that virtue or power had gone out of him. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those that were with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? In other words, Jesus, what are you saying? There's loads of people touching you. They're all around you. People are pushing up against you. And Jesus is asking the question, no, who touched me? You can touch Jesus without faith, and you can touch Jesus with faith. And she was healed in a moment. Now, I'd like to make a comment here which I feel is important. This doesn't mean that there is inerrant power in your faith or my faith. The focus here is not the power of faith, it's the power of God. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in God. And our faith doesn't dictate to God. God is sovereign. And he will, he may or he may not heal at any given moment, woven into his plan and his timing and his way. And we, are, we, we don't understand or question that, but we are just called to trust him. There is not power in my faith, but I trust him who has all power. To heal. Sometimes he might say, be it according to your faith, and other times it's different. Meet me afterwards if you need to ask me about it. Just kidding. Okay, verse 46. But Jesus said, somebody touch me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now, again, it seems that Jesus asked the question for her sake. Now, follow me here. He gives her an opportunity to express her faith, her silent faith in her heart. He gives her the opportunity to confess it, to make it known. So he says, who touched me? And he turns and he looks to the woman. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. Now, Mark adds, again, knowing what had happened to her, she came trembling, falling down before him, and Mark says, and told him the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All right, I'm adding that bit. She told him the whole truth. What was that? You know, she, she was ritually unclean. She would have been ostracized in some measure in the community. She was poor because she spent all her livelihood. She was sick. She was fearful because she knew she shouldn't have been bustling in the crowd at that time. And now she was not hidden. She was on center stage. And it says, she declared to him, oh, I love these words. If you're falling asleep, just snap out for a moment. Okay, ready? That's why we came here. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reasons she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Now listen, she declared. What did she declare? And who did she declare it to? It says, in the presence of all the people. Now remember the picture. They're on their way to Jairus' house, and Jairus is saying, quick, quick, my daughter. 
and all of a sudden it's interrupted. And Jairus is like, oh my gosh, you know. And, and this woman makes this declaration and she tells, number one, how she had heard about Jesus, what she had heard about him. She declared why she touched him, because I believed if I touched him, I would be healed. And it says, and she told how she was healed immediately. What an incredible testimony that would have been to hear. And who heard it? The community, the people. So Jesus not only gives her the opportunity to declare her faith, but now shows publicly that she is healed and she can now have a normal public religious social life. Such beauty and compassion in the way this went down. Now, instead of a rebuke, which she was probably expecting, what did Jesus say to her? He said, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She was probably fearful because of the people of her condition, but Jesus spoke such grace to her. Now, don't miss this point. Remember, Jairus was there, the leader of the synagogue. He's waiting for Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Now, it's important to note that one thing about this woman is that she would not have been permitted to go to the synagogue because of her condition. And Jairus was the head of the synagogue. And Jairus was waiting for Jesus to come and heal his what? Daughter. And what does Jesus say? He says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you whole. And look at this, verse 49. While he was still speaking. In other words, right as Jesus is saying to this woman, daughter, you have been healed. As he is saying, daughter, you have been healed, the messengers come from Jairus' house and say to him, your daughter is dead. Your daughter is healed. Your daughter is dead. I think there's a message in there for Jairus. Jairus, you are worried about your daughter. And here is my daughter. This outcast who wasn't permitted to go to the synagogue, who didn't, who's ha- had such pain and suffering, and he expresses his grace and great compassion to her. And they say, do not trouble the teacher. Now, we should take note. They don't say, do not trouble the Lord. Remember, this is in Capernaum, and ironically or sadly, Capernaum was one of the towns that Jesus pronounced the woe over Capernaum because even though there were great miracles done right on their doorstep, they did not believe. Now, some people say, well, if there was evidence, I would believe. It's not true. It's not about evidence. The people who saw these miracles did not believe. It's not about evidence. It's about faith. If you want evidence, there's plenty of that but it's not about evidence. It's about faith. You can have all the evidence there is, but ultimately in your heart, you must find childlike faith and humility before God and make a step of faith. The assurance will certainly follow. Let's let's finish up here. Verse 50, when Jesus heard it, he said to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe she will be made whole. She will be made well. Wait, what? I think you're a bit late, Jesus. She's already dead, didn't you hear? 
And when he came to the house, he permitted no one to go in except for Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Why was that? When he came to the house, all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep, she is dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. The word is they laughed at him, they mocked him, because they were knowing that she was dead. Jesus obviously knew she was dead, but the term sleeping is often used to imply that death is temporal in the light of a resurrection, and that Paul uses the same terminology in Corinthians and other places about those who are sleeping. He's talking about those who are dead, but they will be resurrected, and Jesus uses the term here. In other words, he's saying this death is temporal. He's saying that she will, she will rise. And he put them all outside. He only had those inside who would have a measure of faith to believe. He didn't want those that were unbelieving and mocking. They can wait outside. And he took her by the hand and he called, saying, little girl, arise. Amazing. From the dead comes life at the word of Jesus. And the spirit of the girl returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. What does it say there? Yeah, parents were astonished, or Mark's gospel says they were overcome with great amazement. I don't doubt it, do you? They were amazed at what happened. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened, although Matthew's gospel tells us that the report of this went out into all the land. It's hard for people to keep, keep things quiet, especially things of this nature. But what do we learn from the, these miracles, these passages this morning? Again, it's the identity of Jesus that is brought into question. As the disciples asked, who is this man? And as the demons declared, surely this is the son of the most high God. It all leads up to that question in the next chapter. We will revisit that together next week. Who do you say that I am? And thankfully, together we can say, as born-again believers, as Bible lovers, as disciples, as those who have been persuaded by the Holy Spirit according to the truth of the Scriptures, marveling at the prophecies that have been fulfilled, loving this beautiful book, we can say with assurance and confirmation and joy that Jesus, He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God incarnate. He is the one and only. He is the Lord of all. He is the Alpha and Omega. And he is our Savior. Blessed are you, if you know that, if you can say that with peace and assurance in your heart. Blessed are you. But flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but our Father and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you this morning for the wonderful assurance that you give us as believers by your Spirit. We thank you that we understand that Jesus has come in the flesh, that we understand that we are in him, that we have his righteousness, and that we have the gift of salvation. 
perhaps there's one listening this morning, maybe even gathered here or listening on the live stream, and you are not sure of your salvation, oh, there is good news for you this morning. This is at the center of the gospel. Jesus is the Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. There is no other way, no other means, no, no program of works by which you can be saved, only through faith in what Jesus has done for you. He loves you. He died for your sins. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So in this moment, put your faith in Jesus. Reach out to him. He sees your heart. He hears your prayer. Save me today. Lead me in the way of truth and everlasting life. And each one of us here, we thank you for your word, for the privilege of being students. We thank you for your spirit prodding our heart, ministering to us, teaching us, convicting us. Blessing these thoughts to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.